Welcome into Film Tank, the weekly podcast that covers both new and classic cinema. On this episode of Film Tank, we get into the holiday season by reviewing the first Die Hard film starring Bruce Willis and Alan Rickman. If you would like to get in touch with Film Tank, you can always email us at filmtankshow at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Film Tank Show. And you can listen to all of our episodes on our website, filmtankshow.com, or on iTunes. And now, here are your hosts, Nick Cheney, Toussaint Egan, and myself, Alex Diekman. Hey, everybody, and welcome in to episode 175 of Film Tank. I am Alex Diekman, along with uh, my only co-host for this very special episode, and that is Nick Cheney. Hey, how Hi, you doing? buddy. What are we going to do for 200. I don't know. I mean, we have to do something special. We're gonna do like a like a unusual pick because we did Predator for one hundred. <laughs> right, Predator was the result of a running gag, although it didn't run as far as I wanted it to. So that's more of a deep cut gag. Yeah. By the time I came up, but that's okay. Um, we should we should pick like a like a really good film for episode two hundred. You know what? I'm with you. Okay. Now, for it's, us to decide, I was going to say it's up for interpretation. To uh, yeah, to come to the same agreement on to what is good, but you know what? That'll just make a our task harder. Fine. Yes. But b the movie we pick that much more special. It'll be great because I'll say something like the original Godfather, yes. and Toussaint will say some anime film, yes, and you will probably want to do some black exploitation film. What up? I mean, it's so uh, we'll we're gonna be on different spectrums, I think. So it'll be. Hey, you're it'll not be a giving challenge. me the shaft. <laughs> so we've got the good news is we have some time. The bad news is we will probably pick the week before, so we True. aren't gonna use that time. True. So that's okay. So something to look forward to probably somewhere <laughs> in the neighborhood of like next summer is when that'll probably say, end it's up gotta be happening. next year. Yeah. So, yeah. It'll be you know. 52, 25, we don't do one every week. So it'll be it's summer-ish up, next year, sometime in 2019. We've been doing this for how long? How many years? It'll be, I think February, it'll be four full years that we've been doing it. Oh, shit. I know. So, that yeah, that's nothing. I mean, nothing for six months more. Oh, yeah, no. Compared to the four no, years. We've no, been, we've been at this for... <sighs> okay, we also have to figure out what our five-year anniversary will be. When, when that comes up, I mean, it's not going to be this February. No, it'll be the following. The following. Year. Okay, so we got yeah. time on that too. We've got time. Okay. Maybe we'll do at some point a top <coughs> six favorite episode of the show. Of the show, that would be very meta. I know. But the problem is, I don't listen to these episodes. <laughs> I don't remember what the hell we've said. On, in fact. I don't know that I'm comfortable with remembering what I've said. You could take the time to go back and listen to all of them and decide. Yeah, yeah. What am I, my mother? Okay. Because she listens to every episode. Does she really? No. I think so. So anyways, we'll, we'll, we'll figure all that out. We got some time. 
So something to look forward to in the future. Episode 200 and then the fifth anniversary episode if we're still going. Hell yeah. And we're still alive well, We're, we're going to go for five years no matter what. I feel like now it's just like a goal. Yeah. We don't want to be that whatever. Like, oh yeah, we, we quit after four years and uh, 11 months. Yeah. It would be a good... Even if, like, you quit, I will be here. Okay. By myself. <laughs> Not recording anything. I'll ask Kenny for the key, because I know he still has a key. <laughs> and uh, I'll get my own laptop, and I'll be like, hey, guys, welcome to Film Tank. I'm here with myself. And you won't be talking to anybody, so it'll be great. You won't yeah. be recording it. Well, at least, be great. at least we'll finally get down to the salient and intelligent discourse that I feel like this podcast has been lacking for four years. You'll just spend four hours talking about Lars von Trier films. It'll be great. It will be. Fantastic. So, enough about what we're going to be looking forward to in the future. Let's focus on the present. And the present is holiday season. Uh, A great time of year. One of my favorite. I know one of yours as well. Absolutely. And uh, this year... Unlike in the past couple years, or three years, I guess, where we've focused on holiday classics and we've done some new films that don't have anything to do with holidays and some that are older, uh, I think this year we're going to spend almost the entirety of December talking about Christmas films, holiday films, whatever you want to call them, that aren't necessarily Christmas films. That's correct. Um, And the first one is what some people consider to be a Christmas classic. Some people consider to have nothing to do with Christmas. And most people who are fans of action films just consider to be a fantastic um, classic action film. And that is the original Die Hard, which came out in 1988 and was directed by John McTurman, McTurnan, pardon me, uh, who also directed the original Predator. Oh, yeah. And also was the director of one of Nick's favorite films of all time, Last Action Hero. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Wow. I don't like John McTiernan. (laughs) Also, though, uh, the cinematographer of this film was... Dubont! Right, who uh, directed two of my favorite action films of all time, the original Speed and Twister. And shot one of my favorite films of all time... Roar, where he was famously mauled and had to go to the... No, seriously, him and uh, and Melanie Griffith were like the two biggest casualties. Not fatalities, but uh, but uh, as far as injuries go, uh, I think... I can't remember what happened to him, but either he got scalped or... I don't know. But, and to be fair, when you watch that movie, it makes sense because he's not shooting from afar. Nope, he's right up in the action. So... This film, uh, the original Die Hard, not like its uh, four successors, uh, follows John McClane, officer of the New York Police Department, as he tries to save his wife, Holly Gennaro, and several others who were taken hostage by German terrorist Hans Gruber during a Christmas party at the Nakatomi Plaza in Los Angeles. So the film does star Bruce Willis uh, in what was probably his career-defining role, I would say. Yeah, I don't think he's really ever uh, matched this type of uh, notoriety. No. I mean, people always remember him in Pulp Fiction. 
and other films too. Uh, but the original Die Hard is probably the highest peak that he found in his career. Yes. Uh, and also ha- Hans Gruber, played by Alan Rickman, who's uh, remembered for a lot of other things other than Die Hard. But he is also remembered for this role. So he had a very nice career. And he was a much better actor than Bruce Willis will ever be. Yes. Yeah. So also here, Bonnie Bedelia, playing uh, John McClane's wife, Holly and then also some other people. Holly, sh- like at Christmas time. Yeah. That's so cute. It's almost like that was. What? Yeah. And then also you have some other people here like Reginald Vell Johnson uh, showing up and taking some time away from Family Matters. Actually, this film was before Family Matters even started, which is very interesting. True. But he uh, uh, shows up here as Sergeant Al Powell, the police officer who just happens to stumble upon this whole terrorist uh, plot. He was just at a quickie mart. I know. <laughs> just trying to get some Twinkies and other things. Hell yeah. He also seems to know every single uh, nutritional uh, percentage of what is in a Twinkie, which I found well, interesting. Well, I'm guessing Twinkies are advice for him. And he's watching his Wade. And he's read the back of the packages many times? Absolutely. A man like that, he's got to shit a lot. What do you do when you shit? You read things. Like Twinkie. Yeah, at least back in the good old days when they didn't have iPhones and other (sighs) devices. Even even if he had an iPhone, he'd probably be Googling it. Like, what's the fat in the Twinkie? Yeah. Siri? Siri, ignore that. How much? That That was just a plop. Oh, my God. Uh, also, Paul Gleason here as the uh, police... It's not police chief. Deputy the chief. Deputy chief. Yes. Um, who many people remember from The Breakfast Club. Uh, but he is here playing Deputy Police Chief Dwayne something. He gets made fun of for his name. Also, to uh, Hart Botchner as the great character of Hart Ellis. He's amazing in this yep. film. Uh, meets his demise and is weirdly a coke addict. And then yeah. also uh, the... There's a lot of vices going on in this extremely uh, white-collar place. Oh, yeah. And then uh, two of the best performances coming out of the uh, terrorists are done by Alexander Gudanov, who plays Carl, and also to Clarence Gayard Jr., who plays Theo, the uh, black gentleman who is hacking everything and making bizarre comments all oh. the time. Yeah. So, this film is wonderful, and I'm a big fan of it, and I guess I'll start us off talking about Die Hard. Uh, I did not see this film for the first time until probably like a decade ago. Uh, never was into the Die Hard series. Still, I'm really not. I've seen this and parts of Die Hard with a Vengeance and Live Free or Die Hard, but I've never sat down and watched the entirety of any others in the series other than this one. Um, and I don't think I need to. Don't think anybody really needs to. Although some of the other films in the series are apparently quite enjoyable, um, and I will probably watch them at some point. But at any rate... Uh, this film really delivers on a lot of levels for me, and I think this film is quite delightful, uh, as it really 
just lands a lot of notes for me that make it a fun two-hour and eight-minute watch. It's a really fun action movie slash... Uh, not caper, but it's... There's there's the heist element going on here with the extremely stereotypical Eastern European thieves uh, led wonderfully by Alan Rickman. And at every corner, it seems like this film is... I don't want to say homaging itself to Westerns, but it's definitely trying to say, here is a Western in a action heist package. Uh, and I just love it, like many people do. It's a very fun watch that at times can be a little bit slow, but for me, I I don't really even feel it during those times that are not fast-paced, action-packed throughout the entirety of the runtime. And I just really enjoy it. I think Bruce Willis is perfectly utilized here for what he can do, which is very little. But um, he's just saying lines over and over and reciting dribble for the most part throughout. And when he does have conversations that are trying to be somewhat meaningful, um, most of them are good, other than his weird send-off thing that he tells uh, Al to tell his wife, which is awful. Um, but at the same time, for when you get from point A to point Z in this film, uh, it delivers on almost every level it could, and it's a very enjoyable film to me, and one that um, is just extremely compulsively watchable, I would say. And that's really all you want out of a popcorn action film uh, that really tries to deliver a message, but it doesn't need to. And it also doesn't go out of its way to make you feel like the message is more important than the silly action film that you're watching. So I'm a fan, and I'm glad this film is out there and could have easily just stayed as being one film. <laughs> so yeah, that's my initial thoughts. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a fan of it. I, I mm-hmm. very much enjoy it. I also don't really love it. Mm-hmm. It's it's one of those things where it's like I pretty much like it. It is a classic, whether I think it is or not. But it's just not ever going to join my personal canon, so to speak. Mm-hmm. But as far as what it does well, though, I mean, it's um, the action is extremely well done, and it comes from an era that is long lost of actual. Uh, gunfights with real sets and whatnot, and that's just, just always a blast to watch, especially when uh, you're watching something that is as uh, legendary in the genre and of, of its caliber and of its peers uh, as something like Die Hard. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, Bruce Willis, who I think is awful, <laughs> to be honest. Um, I actually liked his later stuff a lot more than his early stuff, which is funny because like, the older he gets, the less he tries. And I think, that actually, the less he tries, the better he is on screen. Like, kind of like him more in things like Unbreakable and Moonrise Kingdom, where he just kind of doesn't have to do a whole lot, so to speak. Um, but that's just me. Mm. Uh, but here, he is definitely okay. Like, he he's not uh, casted outside of his element. Um, no, this is very much, already mentioned speed, but something like Keanu Reeves being cast in that. Yeah. They're not looking for... 
someone to win an Oscar here. No. We're looking for someone to deliver a stupid cop performance. True. and But to be fair, I will always take somebody like Keanu's blandness over Bruce Willis's blandness, to mm. be completely honest for my own taste. But he does the job here. Uh, he mostly excels when the movie counts, which is the action. Like, that he does sell. So I can see why he became a big thing. Um, mm. Because unlike some people in his genre who maybe can act better, uh, they probably look a little funnier carrying a machine gun than Bruce Willis does. So it it, it walks a tightrope uh, between that kind of average Joe slash, you know, actual cop who has to save the day. But for the most part, it, it definitely works. Um, I do think it's a little too long. Yeah. I think it could have been 20 minutes shorter at the sweet spot, at least, and maybe even cut out some characters who I even like, like Argyle or something. Just because uh, by the end, I mean, we ch- like I like Argyle, but also checking in with him like three or four times throughout the whole movie did not really add up too much. Um, yeah. Uh, I don't know, it's just one of those things that I noticed this time, whereas before I didn't really, whatever. Uh, I think this movie is starting to hit diminishing returns for myself now, but I've seen it three times within the past few years or so. Yeah. Um, But I obviously absolutely love Alan Rickman. He's the best part of this movie. Oh, yeah. Um, And for for good reason. It's, I think that he's the only reason why this movie became like a classic. Like, I think it would have been a hit with Bruce Willis, but I think we're still watching it to this day because of Alan Rickman. Yeah. His line delivery uh, is fantastic. I mean, that's a guy who really um, throughout his career was typecast into that role and yeah. it was never a problem. Yeah. Like, even in Harry Potter, he's really giving you the exact same line delivery he's giving in this film. Um, and that's why they hired him. True. So True. But unlike some people, he's yeah. kind of got that chameleon effect where he can look very different in each role. Sure. Like, like, literally just putting facial hair on him makes him look much different than someone like Snape, you know, mm-hmm. which is very creepy in some ways. Like, some people, they look the same. They just look like they have peach fuzz or something, but... Um, but no, he's fantastic. Um, a lot of the supporting players, though, are fantastic. Uh, Reginald as Al and uh, the uh, Breakfast Club principal as the... Uh, oh, I hope that's not a hostage. Yeah, but that was great. Mm-hmm. A lot of great lines like that. The two FBI agents were a little too dorky for my taste. Like um, They show up late and they leave quick. Yeah, so, it was just kind of yeah. random. Like it, it felt like, like those are kind of some of the characters I'm talking about where I'm like, I could watch a movie without them, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, I just feel like that's just adding a whole other layer that we don't need because it's already uh, not even complicated, but it's already full enough of stuff. Yeah, it seems like the film <laughs> adds them in as almost like a plot device as yeah. they come in to go by the book and cut the power so the but that's safe also opens. kind of uh, what the Breakfast Club deputy was kind of doing too well, as far as like not straying and listening to Al and whatnot. So it just felt like a slightly more, you know, authoritarian version of mm-hmm. of what came before. But um but there's just a lot of fun stuff to to watch here. I, I absolutely love the way it's shot. Jan Dubont um I think JJ Abrams must love this movie because there's a lot of lens flare. And I actually think it looks pretty great. Like yeah. there's just a there's something about it that actually gives the entire movie texture, and it's crazy because in some of these scenes where some of the actions is taking place, is 
you know, Bruce Willis is walking through what is, in most cases, like in real life, it's just boring office space, you know, I mean, decorated, but just boring, white, you know, uh, what are a lot of it's unfinished. Yeah, unfinished, yeah. construction, whatever, mm-hmm. um, fluorescent light, whatever. But the way Jan Dubont moves throughout it just makes it look like a battle royale, you know, place, and um, it's fantastic. You know, the uh, <coughs> the way the cinematography moves through this is actually uh, somewhat similar, and it mostly I'm thinking about it because of the business office setting, but it reminds me of the... Uh, a little bit of the climactic scene in Collateral, which is wonderful, which moves quickly through the uh, fantastic Michael Mann film. If you have out there have not seen it, you really should because it is a wonderful film starring yes, Tom Cruise and Jamie Foxx. And anyways, that moves through and does a great job blocking the characters while also having really solid camera movement. But I... Do like what you said about J.J. Abrams because I did think about him when he did this weird camera tilt <clears throat> when they uh, finally get into the vault. When they and, start stealing things. Yeah, yeah, and there's a painting in there that it starts on an angle and then tilts to the left. Uh, there was no need for that, but it was great. Yeah. No, it, it's actually, for a movie that's pretty, I would say, I don't want to say trying to say a word that's not a pejorative so it's like i don't mean like boring but just for a movie that was very workmanlike uh for the moment for them to you know when they get in there for a for it to play joy to the world and then b for the camera to literally fall off its own axis uh when they're walking in it's just perfect and yep. it, it should be showy but it's really not no uh it's it's in, it, there's a lot of interesting film choices that were made for this <laughs> And for the most part, they all work. And that is something that is not apparent in modern action films. I mean, everything from sound design, uh, just the physical sets that we have throughout, which you mentioned earlier, Nick. I mean, they're they're wonderful. I mean, you cannot have a scene where you're having somebody hanging down an elevator shaft. Now he's not in a real elevator shaft, but it looks more authentic than a CGI elevator shaft would. Absolutely. Uh, And that's one of the things that sucks about these days that you, you go along and things that now cost more to do with computers uh, looked better before we had them. Unless it's a mission impossible series, uh, you're looking at something that is just so woefully constructed to trick you instead of, uh, excite you. Yeah. yeah. It's a weird uncanny <laughs> valley type thing instead of feeling authentic. Yeah. Um, uh, one thing I was going to say is mm-hmm. on that same note as far as like something like the elevator shaft, uh, his big thing at the end with the fire hose is one of those things where it, like even watching it now you can you can understand that it's a it's a mixture of a lot of different things as far as like a fake backdrop but like there's still a human being in that shot and whatnot and that's also kind of what we're missing. It's not just a person in a green suit who's a stuntman who, you know what I mean? Like where it's just so far beyond 
anything plausible of, mm-hmm. you know, whatever. And, and that shot is fantastic. Just the cross editing between uh, him outside the building with the actual gun teetering on, you know, f- or not the gun, that was the elevator shaft. Mm-hmm. The fire hose uh, teetering on uh, pulling him aside and whatnot is, all that's just really, really great. Which is a more iconic shot from this film. Him jumping off the top of the building, which I think is the answer, or uh, him with the lighter in the uh, air conditioning vent. My personal feeling is him with the lighter. Hmm. Only because I feel like I've seen it in more promotional material. So I don't okay. know if it's necessarily a more iconic in the sense of what people remember. But like I've seen that in parodies and homages. Sure. People jumping off a building, I feel like, is not as diehard as... Something like the vent. Okay. Just because I feel like that is diehard in a nutshell. You mm. know, a guy literally moving around his best. I mean, they're the they're they're the two most iconic shots from this oh, film. Yeah. So yeah, they're they're both in the same ballpark. But I'm yeah, I, I'm with you. Although I would I would think that the other uh, shot of him <laughs> jumping off the building with the fire behind him with the hose around. I mean, him as a is... sequence, it's probably the most memorable sequence. I guess I'm thinking more still image. Sure. So, you know, just literally him sitting there. (laughs) Kind of trapped in the air conditioning vent with a lighter. That's the other thing. Um, This film does a really good job of not wasting uh, plot points throughout. Um, Everything down to the cigarette lighter that he grabs earlier in the film to the uh, explosive that he eventually uses uh, all the way down to the very end with the watch, yeah. um, which is mentioned early in the film, which feels like a stupid throwaway line, and it ends up working. I mean, even the very first part of this film um, is literally a plot device to have a reason for him to not have his shoes on yeah. throughout the yeah. entirety of the film. True. So, and um, I, I have to admit, the first time I sat down and watched this, I paid no mind to the opening scene. I just thought it was a bizarre thing. Like, oh, he's a cop who's got a neurosis. Yeah. No, well, I, I guess I was oh, thinking sorry. more about the... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking that's more, where I went with that. Uh, no, no, that's... And that's understandable. Yeah. I'm thinking more about the, uh, the other passenger sitting next to him who's giving him this whole story about uh, take your shoes off and bend your oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. feet. And it's just like... That seemed odd. Um, But at the same time, I mean, it makes sense. Uh, And there's a lot of those little moments here that um, all of them aren't stupid, which is great because it, it, it makes sense. Uh, And all, everything down to the, uh, before he's um, (coughs) murdered, the stupid coworker Ellis uh, having a Coke delivered to him. Um, after he clearly has a cocaine. I was gonna say going that can't on. be an unintentional <laughs> wordplay joke. I can't, yeah. I, can't, I don't know. I, I'm, I refuse to believe that that's not on purpose. No, I'm sure it is. Um, and it was great. And uh, yeah, uh, previous. Well, go ahead. Yeah. No, no. I was just gonna say, as far as like smart thing that I feel like just wouldn't happen in a thriller today. Hmm. Um, his meeting with Hans before he truly knows it's Hans, like, that can only happen in the era before cell phones and whatnot. You know what I mean? Because if he was any more equipped, he would be, both of them would be able to know what the other looked like, 
without having to stretch too yeah. far. So that kind of now obviously they're both as you watch the entire scene at least somewhat aware and uh assuming but mm-hmm. just the tension between um him giving him a gun and whatnot is it's just very well done. And uh that also relates to probably the best plot device throughout the film, uh which is the photo of the McLean family which she Holly yes. puts down and then uh also at the end it comes back with him picking it up and looking at it and putting all the pieces together. Yep. Um and that's pretty much perfect. Uh, especially in a film from 1988. It just oh, yeah. uh, works very well. And not that you like can't see it coming from a mile away, but at the same time, um, if I had not seen this or heard about this film and seen it for the first time, I probably would have thought nothing of it first right. time. So, yeah. And honestly, seeing things coming is not always a bad thing. It sometimes means that the script is actually doing everything right. You're mm-hmm. just paying close enough attention. Yeah. Like There's a difference between something where like a film, I would say overly telegraphs compared to something where a film just actually lays just good groundwork. Right. I mean, it's I mean, not the same exact thing, but it's like a good horror film. Like, the audience should know what's going on <laughs> yeah. before the characters find out. Exactly. If, like, you know, the audience knows that there's an axe behind that door, but the character doesn't, then you're just waiting for the character to open that door to get that, or, you know, little mm-hmm. things like that. Yeah. So... What I was going to bring up uh, was something you already hit on earlier, which was Alan Rickman's line deliveries and just his performance overall as Hans Gruber. Um, I personally think it doesn't get any better for me than when we are first introduced to him and he's slowly walking up with the guy who's the president of the company and having the weird... um, one-way door conversation with him where he's having a conversation with him, but there's nothing reciprocated and it's really bizarre. Um, And he brings up all kinds of things like men's fashion um, and other things that uh, the gentleman owns. And again, there's, there's no, there's nothing coming from the other end of this two-person discussion, but he's talking as if it's a conversation. It's really bizarre, um, and it just works really well. And, pardon me, Um, Alan Rickman is just so great in this film. I know you already said that, but it's it's just bears repeating. Absolutely. um, Because he's just awesome here. Uh, The scene when he's giving his demands, and he's just randomly saying stuff that he is... He saw His throwaway and, line about yeah. yeah he's well, I, I heard about them in Time Magazine. Yeah, yeah. even the uh, <laughs> Carl, the head or the second in command terrorist, is like, yeah. like yeah. giving him this look like what the fuck, um, and that was just perfect. But it is cool when you see this film second time, third time, whatever. Uh, how the plan is laid out, and it is. Really, a very well thought out heist by these people, even though they're really to murder people. Um, so they're not cool necessarily. Well, like it's one of those things Danny where and the gang. It doesn't seem like a suicide mission if it were to go right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but they seem like they have this really actually good plan. Um, and it's, literally, it's, the only thing that. And that's kind of the whole point of the movie. Yeah. But if John McClane wasn't there, it would have worked. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah, <laughs> not known what hit them, and there you go. Yeah. No, but uh, Alan Rickman is absolutely wonderful here, and he delivers a fantastic performance in a silly action film. So, good for him. Good for him. Mm-hmm. He's so good. Mm-hmm. So that being said, uh, although it was fun to revisit this film and, and talk about it and hit on a little bit of everything, I think, from this movie, this isn't a movie that you could talk for two hours about, I don't think. No, I don't think so. So we can go to ratings, and right. Nick, I will let you go first. Thank you so much, Alex. You are welcome so Whew. much. Uh, yeah, I think this is certainly a delight. It's just, it's a lot of fun. Uh, some great performances from uh, Mr. Rickman and from the limited c- capabilities of uh, Mr. Willis. And um, uh, as we mentioned before, the cinematography and the script, I think, really shine here and almost in subtle ways because we kind of take for granted what blockbusters used to actually put the kind of effort into. Um, and I'm not saying that because, quote-unquote, all blockbusters today are bad or anything like that. But there used to be this kind of prestige around movies that weren't sci-fi fantasy, I guess is kind of what I want to say. Because right now, superheroes, I would say, is in that realm of sci-fi fantasy. Uh, where we would get these kind of boilerplate thrillers, but they always got a ton of money and an actual... Uh, third or fourth pair of eyes on the script and you know nothing was really done uh lackluster and and you get productions like these and so die hard is obviously a product of that i um i kind of take umbrage with the people who champion this as a christmas movie not because it's not a christmas movie but because like this is such a weak uh alternative christmas movie pick there are so many other movies that also are uh quote-unquote Christmas movies that are, in my opinion, better or just more fun picks. So it just seems... Want to give a couple examples? Oh, like Eyes Wide Shut, mm. um, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying, like, you know, there's just a million out there, uh, and those aren't even naming movies that are personally, like, my favorite. Well, Eyes Wide Shut is. Uh, but, like, things like Metropolitan by Whit Stillman. I mean, you know, like, those are deeper cuts. But Die Hard is just kind of... Other than the opening and the closing and a few Merry Christmas sprinkled in, um, it it I, I guess I'll give it this. It is a Christmas movie because I love movies that take place in the season, mm-hmm. but um, this should not be the gold standard for uh, off-the-beaten-path Christmas movies, basically, is my, uh, is my feeling. But I have a lot of fun with this. It's a three and a half out of five for me. And it's something I'm probably never going to love, but I will definitely rewatch it anytime someone wants to. Yeah, it is certainly compulsively watchable. And since you hit on it, uh, I will mention my two cents on this uh, and its distinction as or not as a Christmas film. Um, I always included in it in the discussion simply because... (laughs) Uh, it is a great film to throw in that is not a quote-unquote standard Christmas film. Um, kind of like you're mentioning, there are other things like Eyes Wide Shut that revolve around Christmas. Um, but this is a weird film that seems to just hit a lot of weird notes uh, in the season that 
every year around this time. Like, not that I've watched it every year. It's not something like It's a Wonderful Life or The Muppet Christmas Carol. But at the same time, um, <laughs> it is a very easy watch around the holiday season um, that, for whatever reason, gets me in the mood and also hits a different note than a standard Christmas film. My biggest grievance with this as a quote-unquote Christmas film mm-hmm. is there's not enough Christmas lights. Yeah. Like, literally, something like Eyes Wide Shut, that movie is filled to the brim with Christmas lights, <laughs> uh, almost uh, purposefully so when it comes to symbolism and such, which we'll probably talk on in episode one day because I'm guessing we are going to talk about that movie. We need to get Tucson to watch it. Oh, absolutely. That's, the most, that's probably the most <laughs> important thing. Yeah. And um, But this movie, what makes no sense to me is that this takes place in an extremely tech-heavy company, and there are no Christmas lights anywhere. Yeah, there... There's a tree. Yeah, there are are very few Christmas lights. So, I mean, if I were to just saw some blood or some bullets fly past some beautiful red, blue, orange, green lights, like, that would have just solidified it as like mm-hmm. a Christmas classic but yeah. it's missing that pizza- or a little more snow but it's LA so I get yeah. that but but that's why you gotta put the lights on well it could be I will we'll, that we'll... or Kurt Russell as Santa Claus has to show up <laughs> did you watch that? I did yeah was it worth it or not? Uh, uh, no yes and no uh, it, it is in the sense that it's not good mm-hmm. but if you do want to see Kurt Russell be Santa Claus he's very good at being Santa Claus okay but yeah, no. Okay. Not worth it. Okay. Good to know. Uh anyways, the Christmas movie debate aside, this uh is teetering on a action <gasps> film masterpiece for me. I definitely think this is a all time action classic and it taking place at Christmas time uh is just the icing on the cake. Um I give this a super high rating of four and a half out of five and love Almost every single moment of this film as it's put together in a wonderful package and just delivered perfectly to the audience as uh, this is a weird film that found a sweet spot of telling a story within an action film and being competent, uh, which is another thing that's sorely missed these days from these kind of films. But at the same time, this laid the groundwork for a lot of other action films throughout um, the last 30 years. Die Hard 2. I was going to say a lot of Bruce Willis. Films. Die Hard with a <laughs> Live Free or Die Hard, and then the last one, which nobody liked. So i got to ask you a question really quick. Okay. In one of my uh, film circles of friends, uh, the big debate is always what kind of a person are you, Speed or Die Hard? Oh. So which one do you prefer? Mm. Oh, it's a tough one, eh? It, it is so funny because in in that circle, which is quite a few people, it's always like very like battle cry. Like people have their picks and they do not. Uh... They're in the same ballpark for me because okay. I love speed. <clears throat> yeah, and I will say uh, there is definitely a nostalgia aspect where I mentioned with Die Hard, there isn't like right, I picked right. up on this ten years ago, whatever it was, yeah. um, where. My brothers took me to see Speed in the theater when I was a little kid, so it was like one of the first rated R films that yeah. I saw that I actually I kind of understood what was going on. Um, and Speed is awesome and yeah. off the wall, and it has 
almost as good of a villain, if not better. Dennis Hopper is giving a certainly campier, which I don't mean in a bad way. That's fine. Just as far as like yeah. fun to watch and whatnot. No, but um, it is a very entertaining film. If I had to pick one, I probably would say Die Hard's a better movie. Huh. Um, but I would probably watch Speed before I watch Die Hard. I gotcha. I so I am a big fan of what that film's doing, and I still need to watch Speed in the sense that it's been at least ten years since I've seen it. Yeah, we talked about watching that earlier this year, and we yeah. didn't. And we should really just do that at some point. We'll do that. So maybe we'll get together and watch that like this weekend or something. Whoa! I know. Are you asking me out? If you'll have me, I'd love to. <laughs> so, uh, if any of you out there have any thoughts on Die Hard. Uh, feel free to send them on to us at filmtankshow at gmail.com. Coming up on our next episode, we'll continue with our uh, December plan of discussing films that revolve around Christmas but aren't <coughs> really Christmas films. Uh, and that is, we're going to do our third James Bond film or second? I don't We've know. We've done... I know we did Spectre. Spectre, but I don't think we've done anything else. Okay, I was thinking that we did one of the other ones, but I don't think we did. No. Now I'm thinking about it. Yeah, so it's our second. Okay, probably not our last, no. but our second uh, James Bond film, which is an easy one to remember because it is the only one starring George Lazenby. Yeah. And that is On Her Majesty's Secret Service. Uh, this came out in 1969, and it nice. is... Uh, actually nicholas's favorite james bond film it's actually one of my favorite films of all time ah. i've watched it quite a few times now ever since i first uh, discovered it and uh well friend of the show sarah who was on the persona episode mm -hmm. forced me to watch it and uh it was uh that's definitely what started uh, me watching actually watching and taking not seriously but taking account and appreciation of bond do you do you um do you think that it that it's just because I'm a thirty one year old dude that I'm much more into everything post Connery when it comes to Bond. Because if you look back at like <coughs> historically how people have viewed James Bond, they view Sean Connery's era as like <clears throat> the gold standard. Right. And even though I've never sat down and watched an entire one of those films, although I've seen lots of parts of them, um, I've never really been like, boy, I need to sit down and watch all those someday. No, I, I think you're not alone in the sense that I, Sean Connery is not my favorite Bond either. Yeah. Um, I, in fact, I actually like Sean Connery Bond movies the worst they are as a film. Because then I think his performance and his, uh, shall we say... Well, actually, I think his performance is actually good. Mm -hmm. Like, he does embody the suave of James Bond. Mm -hmm. So I guess I won't say his performance, but his, uh, shall we say, mannerisms as uh, he deals with uh, females and, and hooligans and whatnot are better matched by a more outlandish script, so mm -hmm. to speak. Um, like, I actually really like uh, Diamonds Are Forever, which is one of the worst Bond films ever made, because I feel like everything is firing on a lot of cylinders there. Um, <coughs> excuse me. But mm -hmm. 
No, you're you're not alone in the sense that I prefer pretty much everybody after him. Uh, not everybody. Um, I gotta say, I my personal favorite probably because I grew up with him is Pierce Brosnan. He just kind of looks like what I envisioned to be Bond, but I say that as someone who probably was first introduced to Bond through GoldenEye on, on uh, Nintendo 64, so I'm a little biased when it comes to what I think of when I think of James Bond. Yeah. Um, but the movie we're going to talk about, George Lazenby, who I think is great, uh, that movie is my favorite Bond film. Mm-hmm. So, anyway. And it is always really easy to remember uh, George Lazenby, as he only got one shot at Bond. He did uh, good. And most everyone else has gotten at least four, where uh, other than Timothy Dalton. Yeah, he got two. Um, that's because they wanted Brosnan at the same... Like, actually, that's the story behind that, is that they were going to go with Brosnan that early, but he had contractual obligation, so they're like, okay, let's get somebody else. They got Timothy Dalton, and after two movies, they're like, uh, Brosnan, you, you ready to go? And he was like, yeah. <laughs> Excuse me, I'm dying over here. Yeah, me, me too. Yeah, and then uh, Timothy Dalton was no more. Yeah, even though his movies aren't that bad, yeah. in my opinion. Uh, and we'll talk more about it probably next week, but the hot stove on the uh, James Bond front is still cooking pretty well because yeah. now that Danny Boyle has stepped aside from the next James Bond film, it seems like the entirety of that universe is back completely up for grabs. Uh, it's not a sure thing that Daniel Craig's going to be back. There's this <clears throat> continuous lingering rumor of Idris Elba becoming the next James Bond, which, okay. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, uh, it, <clears throat> James Bond is in just a weird place right now, but I also think it kind of makes sense. Yeah, I mean this is a this is a series that has been all over the place from the beginning for the most part. So. Oh yeah, I mean, I just think it's time to do a whole new uh, Bond, <laughs> and that's not to say that you have to recast anything else. Like if you want to bring back Christopher Walken as Blofeld, like that's fine too. Like M was able to transcend two different Bonds, and uh, different Qs were able to too, and whatnot. Mm-hmm. So um, that's why I don't understand their hang up about recasting Daniel Craig because as much as I obviously love Daniel Craig and I know people like him in the role. I don't think he's that big of a draw when it comes to like actual ticket sales of who Bond is. The the funny thing about it is if Spectre had not happened, I could see why they were pushing to get him back. Absolutely. Because Skyfall is, I think probably the best (laughs) Bond film I've ever sat and watched in its entirety. Yeah. And it also did very well at the box office. Um, and not that Spectre was bad, <clears throat> or it was a failure at the box office, no, yeah, but it did not live up to expectations. No, and it, I think that movie clearly showed that they could go ahead with a new direction if they wanted to at this moment. Like, the the iron does not have to strike again, yeah. basically. So that's why uh, I'm, I'm with you, that the fact that this has actually gone on for almost two years now of right. this Like, weird... if they're that invested in James Bond... Why are they so hung up on something that I don't think is as essential as they somehow think it is? Basically. Yeah. And I'm a little weird that they're just going to pick somebody who's just like a very... Like, Tom Hilston. Like, I could Ooh. see him... See, that's what I'm saying, though. Yeah, no, I hope not. Having some very uninspiring choice and being like, here you go! <laughs> and it's like, oh, okay. <laughs> no, and I don't want them to do some kind of 
quote-unquote crazy pick like um oh like i don't know like pick some kind of comedic actor who's gonna do a oh God, James more Corden. something like that i mean not literally him but you know like someone who's known for their comedy but then in this role they're gonna be more serious whatever but i do want them to go a slightly lighter route because i love the daniel craig films for what they were but i also think that we could use another lazenby and connery uh or even uh Roger Moore. Yeah. So. Well, we'll see. Uh, we'll have plenty of time to discuss because it seems like there is no end in sight. And in all honesty, the next one probably will have Daniel Craig in it. Oh, yeah. Um, but who knows when that'll be happening at this point. But the other thing, too, really quick, is yeah. that if it will have him in it, like, I'm also okay with that. But let's call it his final film. And obviously, you don't need closure in a James Bond film. Mm-hmm. But let's, you know, just... Let's have the production mean something and maybe have a little bit of a more of an effort than I feel was put into uh, Spectre uh, to give a final hurrah. You know, no, uh, what's her name, just showing up randomly. Monica Bellucci, was she? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, just these one-off things that just meant nothing. And even Dave Bautista in that movie just... See, the weird thing about Spectre is that was... (laughs) That may be an all-time... Just grabbing names that were hot at the moment. Oh yeah, I mean, I was hyped for that film based on who they got and like the teaser trailer, and of course, calling it Spectre like that was a big moment in the James Bond fandom because Mm -hmm. for the longest time they did not have rights to Spectre stories as Mm -hmm. far as like that name brand, and then it was just I'm not Blofeld. Also, too, you said Christoph Walken, Christopher Walken. Oh, did before. I? It was awesome. Whoops. That would be a much different film. I mean, I'd watch that. I'd be down for Wait, it. no, he is in a movie. He's in uh, one of the, the don't, no, one of the Moors. He's in, um, oh, okay. he's the villain in A View to a Kill, okay. I want to say. Hmm. I'm going to look that up while you wrap it up. Okay. Because I don't want to be wrong. No, but uh, everybody from Leia, Leia Sadiu who, uh, to Christoph Waltz. Um, to Dave Bautista, I mean, you just were hitting all of the yeah. people who happened to be somewhat noteworthy at the time, and to uh, there he is. Yep, view to yeah, a kill. Look at that, man. So yeah, yeah he's already been good. a Bond villain because, yeah. frankly, he's a Bond villain in every movie. Yep, it's far right. Even that silly Peter Pan thing he did uh, a few years ago. God, that was wonderful. But at the same time, uh, that was a film that really had a two big scenes that were noteworthy, which were the giant explosion in the middle of the desert, which was awesome, but it was a 14-second scene. Uh, And to that weird tracking shot during the Day of the Dead scene that still is very bizarre. Yeah, when your most notable things are your opening scene that also doesn't establish much. (laughs) I'm just saying, like, you know, like, it was cool to watch, but also... I still don't think you or I could tell you without having watched it recently what the bearing of that scene was on anything that came really didn't after. didn't have any. No. no. Uh, and then, yeah, as you said, a 14-second special effects scene, which immediately looked cool, but, uh, yeah, there's not a lot going on there. No. So, anyways, we'll talk more about James Bond, and specifically on Her Majesty's Secret Service coming up on episode 176. Nick, thanks a lot for... Uh, Hey, thanks for having me, Alex. Coming out and hanging out and having a couple beers and chatting about Die Hard. As always, it was a fun time. And from Nick and myself, 
Thank you very much to uh, the Film Tank listeners. We'll be back to catch up with you next time. 